Man, thank you guys. My son just uh, my son just leant over to me and said, "Wow, Ethan's got a really good voice." So, Ethan, uh, thank you for worshiping with your wife and uh, leading us this morning. Ethan heads up uh, Playland Ministry in Elementary, and it's great to have him with us. And uh, good morning to you as well. Thank you for joining us for week number three of our series entitled The Imperfect Christmas, where we are unapologetically looking at the most boring text in the New Testament. We're doing that because there is an awful lot of truth that is wrapped up in the genealogy that we read in Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, that really lays the foundation for the gift of Christ that we celebrate at Christmas. Now, in the first few weeks of this series, we've looked at three of the ladies mentioned in the genealogy. And let me just set this straight for all you ladies out there. The reason we're focusing on the ladies is not because women are a perfect example of a sinful humanity, okay? That's really not the point. The point is that all of these women having imperfect backstories that they demonstrate incredible faith in an awesome God who shows them perfect grace. That's why we're focusing on these ladies. Despite an imperfect backstory, they demonstrate incredible faith and they receive the gift of perfect grace. And we believe that that's a powerful message at any season but we believe that that is an incredible message in this season. Now today we've reached verse six of Matthew chapter one, and this is what we read. We read, and Jesse was the father of King David. The phrase king is an important phrase for Matthew 21 times in his gospel, he uses it. Remember that Jesus is the son of Abraham and the son of David, that's an important title for him. And then tells us a little about David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. <laughs> okay, we heard about Tamar, two Tamars in the Bible. The other one is a couple of chapters later in Second Solomon, uh, Second Samuel 13. First one is in Genesis 38. We heard about Tamar. She's mentioned by name. We hear about Rahab. Okay. Steve talked about her last week. She's mentioned by name. But now we've got that woman. Doesn't he mention her? So what's Matthew doing here? Is, is, is Bathsheba the that woman of Israelite politics? Or is she another example of a woman that's used and abused by men who desire things they do not value. I already shared with you in week number one that Matthew is intentional in the way that he's crafted his genealogy. He's structured it in three sections of 14. So the obvious question with this intentionality is why doesn't he refer to her by her proper name? And secondly, what has this got to do with the Christian faith? And what has this got to do with our faith in America at this point in time? Matthew knows what he's doing. He interprets the story of Jesus to speak a message of hope and of life and sometimes of correction 
and redirection to a religious community that needed to embrace the perfect gift of perfect grace to imperfect people. So who is this Bathsheba? Is she that woman of Israelite politics? Or is there a little more to the story than that? If you have a Bible and you're looking at Matthew chapter 1, I want you to notice the, the genealogy. Look at it with me. And what you'll notice is that verse 6 comes to us at the start of the second section of the genealogy. We've gone through the first section from Abraham, okay? Now we're starting this second section of the genealogy. And in this second section of the genealogy, we note that it starts with a statement that reminds us of David's personal sin. It's the Bathsheba moment or the Uriah moment. But if you drop down to verse 11, you will note that this section ends with a statement about Israel's public shame. The personal sin of David in verse 6 starts the second section of the genealogy, and it ends in verse 11 with a statement of Israel's public shame. Structurally, then, what we can say is that what we have in naming Uriah rather than quoting Bathsheba is that we are, we are meant to see the unraveling of David's personal life that leads to an unraveling of public life. I hope you're getting the message. Any man or woman in public office who say that their personal life has nothing to do and no impact upon public life, the Bible says you're missing the point. If a husband will think nothing of cheating on his wife in private, he will think nothing of cheating on you in public. That's where this goes. See, the second section of the genealogy is designed to show how the sin that invaded the world through Adam is now getting to the point that even the men of God, even the man after God's own heart, can sometimes do ungodly things. And what stirs in private rolls out into public shame where God's people end up in exile as discipline. And the question that the genealogy in this section is asking us is, what is God going to do about it? What is God going to do about the sin that invades us personally and then flows out and infects our relationships with the people who, like people like Uriah, would very well lay down their lives to protect us? What is God going to do with a, a problem like that? And then we're led into this third section of the genealogy, which when you read it, you realize doesn't solve the problem. It just prepares the way for the solution to the problem. And the solution is that God would bridge the gap between a sinful person, David, a shame-filled nation, Israel, and himself by bridging the gap with the perfect gift of someone called Jesus. And as the angel told Joseph when he was thinking about what to do, because Joseph knew that the child wasn't his, the angel said, you shall call him Jesus because he 
will save his people from their sins. And so right there in the second section of the genealogy, we read of men like Manasseh, verse 10, who the Bible says was the most evil of all kings. So one of the reasons that Matthew writes Uriah's wife, not Bathsheba, is because he wants to realize that the personal problem of sin on the inside, if not dealt with, spills out, and it affects people closest to us and even goes on to affect a nation. And God's solution to public shame and personal sin is the wonderful gift of perfect grace through Jesus. There's an awful lot in the list of names, isn't there? What a wonderful story. And so if we dig a little bit deeper into this, we'll see this. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 11. This is the story of Bathsheba. And we're going to start to see how God is going to work through a godly man's ungodliness. If you took a Bible from off the, the racks here, that is page 309. Page 309. And nine. And what we discover as we read this, we'll read the, the first five verses in, in just a moment, but what we discover is that when Matthew writes Uriah's wife, he's doing it because that's the way that she's portrayed. In the original story in 2 Samuel 11, Bathsheba is impersonalized. The context of 2 Samuel 11 is of David's impure motives. So when you read 2 Samuel 11, what you'll notice is that in the first five verses, Bathsheba is mentioned eight times. And in those eight references, uh, nine times actually, eight references are impersonal, and only one of those references is to her by name, and that's in verse 3. And that's not by David, that's by someone answering David's question. You'll also notice as you read this that the only time in the entire incident the Bathsheba speaks is to utter two words, I'm pregnant. I'm pregnant. You'll notice that after verse 3, she does not get another personal mention again until verse 24 of chapter 12. That's when her name is mentioned again. But this time it's in connection with David. Something has happened here. In chapter 11 and verse 26, we notice that she is referred to as Uriah's wife three times. I'm using the English Standard Version here because it translates the text more literally. If you're reading the New International Version, it basically says she or her. But this is what it says. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. Her name is used once in chapter 11, but on four occasions, once in, chapter th uh, once in verse 3, three times in, ver in verse 26, she's referred to as Uriah's wife. So why do you think Matthew refers to her as Uriah's wife? Because that's the way that Samuel 
refers to her. The book of Samuel refers to her in the story. You see, one of the most amazing factors in the story of David and Bathsheba is how anonymous Bathsheba truly is. She is referred to in a number of ways. She's referred to as woman. Twice. Her, three times. She, three times. But only by name once. And when you dig into this story, you quickly begin to realize that this woman is intentionally impersonalized. The obvious question is why? I think the reason for this becomes pretty clear as we read the introduction to the story in verses 1 through 3. The reason for it is that the author of Samuel wants to show quite clearly that David is the one in control of the encounter. This is going to become significant for our application in just a moment. So let's have a look at the story. Remembering that she is impersonalized, she's referred to four times as Uriah's wife. That's why Matthew does it. Let's have a look at how this story begins. 2 Samuel 11, verses 1 through 3. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab, who's the commander of the forces, out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her, and the man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now, notice how this story begins. It says, at the time, times when kings go off to war, David remained in Jerusalem. Now, why did he stay in Jerusalem? The text actually tells us. It tells us that David isn't portrayed as staying in Jerusalem to take care of any important business. No, the text tells us when his army was fighting and getting killed, David was taking a siesta. Verse 2 says, one evening. The word evening is literally twilight or sunset. This isn't in the middle of the night and he wakes up. This is actually at the, end of a, at the end of a long afternoon nap. At the time when kings are going out to war, David is taking a long siesta. He's abrogating his responsibility to lead the troops. Not sure about this? 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 26 through 31. Read it. If you read that text, you'd realize that now the siege of Rabbah is over. Joab is about to lead the victorious Israelite army in there, but Joab knows that's not his job to lead the forces. If Joab leads the troops in there, the city becomes Joab's. Joab is loyal. He sends messengers back to David. David, I'm about to besiege the city. I'm about to take it, and you need to come, and you need to lead your troops victoriously in there. So David puts on his clothes, gets, takes off his dressing gown, and he kind of goes and leads his people to take a city that was not his. See, it started with personal sin, taking a woman that was not his, and now it ends up in him taking a city that is not his. 
Folks, those that sin on the inside, this hurt, this habit, this hang-up, this thing that's got you, guess what the Bible says? The Bible says it works its way out of you unless you take it captive. So he's not in Jerusalem to do anything important. He's in Jerusalem because he's just, what, bored? Actually, we don't know. But we do know that what is described here in detail about David being there, why he's there, him talking to someone, trying to find out who Bathsheba is, all of this takes an inordinate amount of time, but the deed itself is written quickly. Then David sent messengers to get her. Why? We don't know. What was she told? We don't know. What information did the messenger use to get her there? Simply, the king wants you, and we don't know. Was she kind of told, hey, David has some news for you? We, we don't know. We're told a lot of detail about what's going on in David's heart, but we're not told an awful lot of detail here, are we? No detail at all, no facts at all. And then she came to him, and he slept with her. Was it consensual? We don't know. We don't know. She leaves in the story. She leaves and returns home. And what's really interesting is in the rest of the story, Bathsheba never leaves home. Even when Uriah, her husband, comes home at the command of David, and David says, hey, Uriah, why don't you go home and sleep with your wife? Why? Because the only two words the Bathsheba utters is, I'm pregnant. He thinks, I've got to do something. Gets Uriah home from battle, says, hey, why don't you go home to your wife? Uriah doesn't go. A couple of times David tries, Uriah doesn't go. But the whole time, Uriah is said to be at home. No details. Nothing. So what's intriguing with all of this is how impersonal Bathsheba is portrayed, how impersonally. She doesn't speak. There's no hints about uh, for us to discern her character. There's no motivation that is given to cast light on anything that happens in the story. We know little of either her character or her motivation. All we know are some scant details. All we know is her ancestry. She was from Jewish stock, but she married a Hittite, which would have made her a Hittite in that culture. We know of her beauty. We know of her pregnancy. We know that she mourns for her husband when he dies. And we know that she mourns for her son by David when he dies. That's all we know. We don't know anything else. Now, this makes a lot of religious people really uncomfortable. They want to know more about Bathsheba, but they aren't given any more. They want to know more about what was going on in David, but they aren't given any more. All that we're told is a godly man acts in an ungodly way, period. Let me ask you a question. What do you do with that? What do you do when you hear that godly people act in ungodly ways? Isn't one of the first things we do 
to say, hmm, why? What happened? We want to dig a little bit deeper because this is kind of uncomfortable. This is awkward. This whole story is an awkward story, isn't it? Reminds me of those awkward Christmas cards. In verse 6 of Matthew, we're not told a lot, right? We're just told about Dad Jesse, uh, Granddad Jesse. We're told about Dad David. We're told about the little baby Solomon. And then the wife seems to have a T-shirt on it with the name Uriah murdered by my first husband. It's a little awkward. Kind of reminds me of uh, the Christmas cards that our family used to do because you know, one of the funny things was when we uh, moved from London to Hamburg a number of years ago, we, uh, would, we were in a, a kind of convention of churches where 96% of the pastors were American. And that was there for the first time that some of the pastors would send me a Christmas card. And in this Christmas card, there would be like this family photo, right? And they would have the mom and there would all be these designer scenes. And I'd never seen that before because it isn't British. And I would be like, Tavipka, what's this? And they say, yeah, that's just the way that the Americans do the Christmas cards. And I was like, wow, I'm glad we don't do it like that because, you know, if we did, I said to Vibka, we'd have five people that would be so photogenic and then we'd have me. I said, I can't smile. And if there's one thing that Europeans say about American is, Americans is you can all smile. Right? You've got, your little, you've got your little smile that you can do. I can't do that smile. In fact, if you look at me, any photo I'm in, I'm nearly always, okay, with my head slightly to the left, it's my uncomfortable little thing, and there's this smile that is so awkward on the whole thing. I, I, I really, I just can't do it. it. It is so awkward. And I'm saying, wow, thank the Lord that we're in Germany, and we don't have to do that, and then the Lord sends me to Tampa. And the first summer of 2008 was the time I had to do that awkward Christmas card. And I still look at that photo, right, and I'm there with my China smile and everybody else is photogenic and there's me, Mr. Awkward, in the whole thing. But, but there's, there's something with this, that there's something awkward about this whole picture of a godly guy, a guy described as being a man after God's own heart doing something so ungodly. What do we do with that? How do we deal with that? What do we do when we hear of ungodly people acting in ungodly ways? Here's what we don't do. We don't embellish the story. See, if we want to offer the gift of perfect grace to imperfect people, it begins by stating the facts, not by plugging the gaps. I've recognized through my years in ministry that we do not offer grace by judging people, and yet, inexplicably, that's all too often what Christians will do when so-called godly people do ungodly things. We will justify it, we will explain it away, or we will even apportion blame. 
we're really not sure what to do when ungodly people do godly things, and on the other side, when godly people do ungodly things. Let me give you an illustration of, of what I mean. For centuries, people have tried to dig into the fact that there's nothing said about motivation in this account at all. We know very little. And even though we know very little, it hasn't stopped people from judging and deciding what's going on. And so, a number of commentators refer to Bathsheba, for example, and say, it's actually all her fault because ungodly men don't do, uh, godly men don't do that kind of ungodly thing. It's got to be Bathsheba's fault. And, And so, they point to incidents later on, one incident, one incident later on where Bathsheba speaks. She goes to David after they married and said, hey, won't you kind of think about making our son the king? And they go, ah, that's it. She's the, literally, commentators will say, she is none other than the woman of death. That's what they label her. And basically, their logic is this. Just as Eve deceived Adam and Tamar deceived Judah, so Bathsheba seduced David. She is a woman who wanted position, power, prestige, and she used her looks and her body to get it. Why else, they say, would she be bathing on a roof right then? Yeah, why would she be bathing on a roof right then? Doesn't the text tell us? She was purifying herself for her monthly uncleanliness. See, there, there was a, something that faithful Jews would need to do in order to remain clean. That's what she's doing. But this hasn't stopped people uncomfortable with the idea that godly, pe- godly people do ungodly things, pointing their finger at the woman. And a number of you ladies are saying, amen, finally somebody's saying it. It's not always our fault, right? Eve was right there by the side of Adam when he took the fruit. You didn't have to take it, but that's what some people do. Now, it doesn't stop there, of course, because after the deed is done, the writer tells us what she's doing on the roof. She's following the law. Other people then have stepped in and started to say, okay, look, it really is time that people started to stand up and and speak out for for women. And they say, rather than portray Bathsheba as the that woman of Israelite politics, this is another example that men in positions of absolute power desire things that they do not value. They take things and they dump people as if they're possessions, and it has to stop. And as uncomfortable as we are with this idea, America right now is having this conversation. This is the current cultural conversation. And there are accusations coming up against men in positions of power, taking things that do not belong to them, and we don't know the details, do we? What do we do when we don't know the details? What do we do when we don't know the character? What do we do when we don't know the motives? Here's what we don't do. We don't fill the gaps. We don't fill the gaps. 
But right now, there is an onslaught of people stepping up and just challenging the idea that men in positions of authority have the right to take those things that do not belong to them. And so the, some commentators, uh, female commentators, will look at this text and they say, look, if you were to take this story of David and Bathsheba and you were to go into a developing part of the world where women are mistreated and you would read this story to them and you would just change the names, everybody would say quite clearly, all of these women would tell you quite clearly what's going on. What they would tell you is this act was not consensual. She was voiceless, she was a victim, and he was the villain. Now, is that true? We don't know whether that's true. We don't know the details. We don't know the data. But yet again, there's another example of people reading a story, being uncomfortable with, with the reality, the earthiness of the story, and seeking ways of trying to justify, to explain it, to point the finger. Other Jewish commentators are really uncomfortable with this because when you look at the text, Bathsheba is voiceless. She doesn't speak apart from saying two words, I'm pregnant. And they, they recognize that in scriptures, all too often the voiceless are the victims of injustice, and that those in positions of authority need to stand up, and they need to stand up on behalf of the victim. And, and so some Jewish commentators throughout history have looked at this, and they say, wait a minute, we're really uncomfortable with the idea of godly men doing ungodly things, godly people doing ungodly things. There's got to be a reason for this. And so they'll kind of jump into the, into the text and, and they'll say, ah, yes, what people often forget is when a military soldier would go off to battle, what they would often do is they would divorce their wife. They would divorce their wife before they went into battle because the worst thing that could happen to a woman of a, of a soldier left at home is not for their husband to be killed on the battlefield, that is bad enough, it's for the husband to go missing. If the husband would go missing, they would fall through the cracks. So quite clearly, Uriah had divorced Bathsheba before they went away in battle and as as a result of that, the sin that David committed was not adultery, it was actually not waiting until he could marry her. Well, that's convenient, except we've already read 11.26 says that Uriah's wife three times. So then they'll say, okay, um, maybe we need to look at this slightly differently. Maybe what we need to do is to recognize that Uriah deserved death. Yes, the way that David did this thing was wrong, but you've got to realize, they point out, the Jewish commentators, that David was a king, and as a king with absolute authority, he gave a command to Uriah. The command was, go home to your wife. Uriah turned around and said, no, I won't because Joab is fighting. I won't fight. I won't go home. So what these Jewish commentators, this is, this is, I'm being serious with you. Okay, what these Jewish commentators will say is, well, quite clearly there's insubordination and rebellion here against David, and in that day and age, there's only one thing that you have to do, and you have to kill someone who's so high up in your military and does something like that. What David did was the right thing the wrong way. He shouldn't have done it that way. He should have trusted the justice system, and he didn't. Are you getting the picture here? Are you getting the picture of what commentators will do what religious people can do when it comes to us trying to get ahead around the fact that sometimes godly people do stupid things. And all too often our solution to this is to try and explain it away, justify it, or even point the finger at someone else. But when God looks at it, he just sees this. 
This is wrong. This is wrong. This is sin. And see, when that happens, if God loves us as his children, if we ever find ourselves in a position of doing an ungodly thing, and I hope we realize that sin is the great leveler in this room, God loves us so much that invariably he is going to bring a word and his word to us. He loves us that much. And he loved David that much too. What David did was, wow, unmentionable, right? That's why I'm trying to use all of these big words to make sure that I can say this without the little ones actually grabbing hold of the implications of it. But David is then confronted by Nathan because God loves David too much to leave him in his sin. And and see, the message we're given here, okay, is that the good news of Jesus Christ, the good news of the grace of God is not a reward for the perfect. It's actually a gift to the flawsome, those people who are flawed, but awesomely created and loved by God. See, when we're caught in our sin, when we're caught either with responses or attitudes or behavior patterns that are unbecoming of a child of God, then what God does is He brings His Word to us. And that Word is designed to cause us to respond in the only way a godly person can. That's what David says to Nathan. I have sinned. I have sinned against the Lord. See, the response and the way out of an imperfect backstory is not to earn your way through it. It's to receive the gift of perfect grace. So David looks at Nathan and says, I've sinned. And then this is what Nathan says. The Lord has taken away your sin. And then... You are not going to die. Now, there's another side to this that's horrific, isn't it? The side that's horrific to this is a man has died. And David gets to live. Anyone who has ever been on the wrong side of injustice wrestles with the idea of something called the horror of grace. God can simply speak the word and forgiveness can come. It's the horror of grace. doesn't mean to say there's no consequences for that sin. Different issue. But God can speak the word and there's forgiveness. I wonder how many of you are in here and you've experienced that relationally. Maybe you're in a relationship where someone who you love has, has done something that has really hurt you. 
And there has been that genuine repentance. And in that moment, there is that genuine forgiveness. And no matter how much you try to forgive, there is still that part of you every now and again that flares up on the inside and says, God, this just isn't fair. In that moment, the Spirit of God comes to us and says, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And it is because of the grace of God given to you that you too will not die. Why? Because Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why, if this is so true, we've all sinned, we all fall short of the glory of God, that the gift of God is eternal life, that when there's true repentance, God forgives, why do we find it so hard? For some of us, it's because we've been hurt, and it hurts to be treated that way. But the other side of this is, why is it that the religious community, the Christian community that have been shown so much grace by God are the ones that are so often the, the, the group of people that feel the need to plug the gaps, to justify inexcusable behavior? Why do we do that? And do we know the cost of it? Do we know what happens when people come into our church with imperfect backstories and they hear us making judgments without facts. You should have been in the room with some, of our, with some of our counselors yesterday as we were listening to this backstories of people who live less than a mile away from here. Some of them who've been in prison multiple times. Do you know how hard it was to, for them to come face to face with their past? But do you know how powerful it was to sit across from someone who simply says, you may be flawed, but God thinks you're awesome. You know, the, the fact is the church is a beautiful place, and sometimes it's a really difficult place to be. In my 25 years of ministry, the church is the place where I felt both the most judged at times and the most helped. There have been seasons when the most hurtful people have been the ones I worship with each and every week. And there have been other times when the most helpful people in my life have been the ones I worship with each and every week. Church, can you imagine what it would be like? How powerful it would be if we would cease trying to plug the gaps in someone else's imperfect backstory and were just content to state the fact that God loves imperfect people perfectly. You see, the gap between our imperfection and God's perfection is bridged not through our explanation of our sin, but by God's demonstration of His love. What would it be like if we would realize that God gave us one mouth and two ears because before we ever speak, we listen twice? How powerful would it be if we realized that God's solution to our own sin was to love us nonetheless. You see, church, the reason we enter into someone else's world is the reason that God entered into ours. 
The reason we enter into someone else's world is not to plug the gaps, but to bring Jesus into the gap between their imperfect backstory and God's perfect grace. And as someone has said, if we aren't trying to help, then we really shouldn't bother because we'll probably make it worse. And if we are trying to help, we'll likely notice that we'll see a flawsome person who God loves. Because the truth is, people never get judged into life change. They get graced into life change. And Christmas, this gift of Christmas, tells us that it doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter what you've done. Grace can find you and grace can change you. You may be here today in the darkest moment where you see no hope, but the end of this story gives us all hope. Look at the end of the story. David has gone through this confrontation. He's been confronted by Nathan. He's repented. Nathan says, you, you won't die, but God is going to turn this mess into an incredible message of grace, and this is how he's going to do it, David. And we see it right here. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba. Now you see. Now he mentions her. Now he's going to do the right thing by her. And he went to her and he made love to her. She gave birth to a son and they named him Solomon. The Lord loved him, Solomon. And because the Lord loved him, he sent word through Nathan the prophet and named him Jedidiah, which means beloved or loved of the Lord. You see what happens? When God speaks his word to us in the darkest moment of our experience, that mess, suddenly, it doesn't get erased. You don't forget about it. But all of a sudden, the Spirit of God attaches himself to you and to that story, and he leads you out. So that mess leads to a message of hope for you and for the world. And Jesse was the father of David. And David was the father of Solomon, the wife of Uriah. God never kind of erases our sin. Once we've made a mess of something, we can't erase it. But God, when there's repentance and faith, he takes that imperfect backstory and he uses it as a message of hope and life for the world. A guy by the name of Walter Brueggemann has written some incredible words in his commentary on 2 Samuel. I want to read you some of them. He says, the placement of Solomon's birth in this narrative is stunning in 2 Samuel. Solomon is born so close to the sordidness, still within the echo of the prophetic lawsuit of, David, of Nathan's words. Nonetheless, life begins again for this family. And then he writes these words. The God, this God has an amazing capacity to work more life at the border of death, to act in promise-keeping ways just when the promise seems exhausted. Is that God's word to you? There seems to be no hope, no way out. The mess is too big. But at the very moment, there seems to be no way out. God comes through. And he says, the account of David and Bathsheba is a tale of alienation and of judgment. In its midst, however, are gestures of grace made by Yahweh. This birth is marked by God's love 
not his anger. I believe that what's true for David is true for each and every one of us. Even when it feels like we're in the dark, God is preparing us for what he has prepared for us. That's true for David. Even in this moment where David is in his darkest point, God is preparing David for what he has prepared for David, the gift of a son, Solomon. What it took for David to get there was repentance and realizing that when God's word finds me in my sin, and not to explain it or to defend it or to justify it or to blame someone else for it, I simply say, God, I've sinned against you. And in that moment, despite that imperfection, there is an incredible thing called grace. And this gift of perfect grace is the way that God loves imperfect people perfectly. So this season, let me encourage you, reflect Christ to the world in the way that you love the world. If you hear stories, people's imperfect stories, whether in the media or someone else, let's be slow to judge. Let's be quick to listen and quick to bridge the gap between an imperfect world and a perfect God. Let's be Jesus. And as we do that, let's be prepared to be amazed at what God will do. Let's go to God in prayer, shall we? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much that you loved us, not with words, but indeed, by sending your Son, Jesus Christ, to bridge the gap between our flawed, imperfect state and your perfect holiness. Father, none of us in this room who have confessed Christ the Savior have done so through anything that we have done, but simply by receiving what you have done for us through Jesus. And Father, I thank you that whatever led us to that moment of proclaiming Christ becomes a part of a message of sharing Christ with the world. And so, Father, I pray for those people who may be here this morning, and they are in that darkest point. They may well be struggling with hurts and habits and hang-ups caused by the actions of imperfect people to them. God, won't you just come through your Holy Spirit and, and just pour in your grace, a grace that offers grace to those who've wronged them. Let forgiveness flow not just for those who have been wronged, but also for us who have been wronged. And Father, I pray that in this Christmas season, we would just be the hands and feet of Jesus in a nation that desperately needs to hear the words of grace. Father, we thank you that your son, Jesus Christ, grew in grace and truth. Help us never water down the truth. Help us to proclaim it boldly, but to do so in love. So, Father, we love you, and we thank you so much for what you've done for us. And may we give that gift to others this week. In Jesus' name, amen.